We now go to our third dialogue between me, Oliver Tapton, and Lorna Hardwick. We're going to move on to the translation of poetry and pose the question, can poetry be translated? It, there's a notorious quote, not quite sure who actually first said it, that poetry is what is lost in translation. That seems to be a counsel of despair and say that, OK, you can translate prose, but you can't translate poetry. Obviously, you can translate rules and regulations governing the use of bank cards. I actually know somebody who earned a living by translating things like rules and regulations for bank cards. He now writes sitcoms. But let's turn to poetry. We're in a different ballgame. And let's take Greek tragedy as an example. There are actually two main kinds of poetry in Greek tragedy, and there is no prose. One kind of poetry is spoken iambic meters. It's quite like blank verse, and Aristotle said that this meter was particularly close to speech. That's not to say that blank verse is necessarily the best way of translating into English, but it's not unlike the verse of Shakespeare. And it's heightened from that of everyday speech, but it's not remote from everyday speech. And then the other kind of poetry that you get in Greek tragedy, the other main kind of poetry you get is lyrics. And then they're further from ordinary speech. They are indefinitely in a kind of, in a more elevated diction, a more complex diction, one with more archaism. And they're in complex meters and actually unique meters. You don't get the meters repeated. And they were set for music and for dance. Now, one can ask, well, should a modern translation, or if not should, uh, could a modern translation somehow reflect these two different kinds of, of metric, this two different kinds of, of musicality? Are there really good reasons for, for searching for some kind of a metrical equivalent? Joseph Brodsky, who was, after all, uh, in some ways, uh, translated his own poetry from Russian into English, wrote, a translator should begin his work with a search for at least a metrical equivalent to the original form. So he definitely put it down as a, as a should. And this musicality, I, I came across a wonderful quotation from Singh, J.M. Singh, the Irish poet and playwright, who said, no translation is a translation unless it gives you the music of a poem as well as the words. So can the music of a poem be translated as well as the words is our question. I think there are particular issues as soon as you're talking about theatre poetry because there are overlaps between approaches of not towards non-theatre poetry and what happens in a theatrical context. But there are also, I think, differences. I mean, there's a tension, isn't there, between, certainly so far as the translator is concerned, between a literary translation of a text which is to be read, to be heard in the mind, but studied on the page, and a translation that is for performance in conditions which are usually very different from those of ancient Greece. I mean, not only is there the, you know, the movement, the choreography of the chorus, masks are not usually used, theatres will be probably indoors and certainly not be for many thousands of people that may have attended the major performances in, in ancient Greece. There are questions about whether there is going to be live music as part of a theatrical performance. And for a literary translation to be read on the page, how is that musicality of the words going to be suggested? I think there are a lot of elements there. I mean, one of the things that translators often comment on is how difficult it is to get 
a metrical equivalent that is also a poetic equivalent. Mm. I mean, I'm thinking, for instance, of Reginald Gibbons's introduction to the translations of Greek drama that he worked with Charles Siegel, the, the scholar, on. Where he, Gibbons talks about the way in which the nature of the ancient Greek language was that it crammed in more meaning to a few words than could be the case in English. And in a sense, both the poetry and the sound is dependent on that. Mm. And to translate that effect into English is a very big task for the translator. And, and everyone would agree that translating for performance, I guess whatever kind of musicality and poetry you're going for, it's got to be audible and it's got to be speakable. Heaney goes on about how his translations were above all audible. It was a terrible irony that then an opera was made of the, his Antigone translation, The Burial of Thebes, and the words were totally inaudible. Yeah. But speakability is necessary. It's never going to work in the theatre if, if the actors can't get their yeah. tongues around the words. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting if you follow through what actually happens in rehearsal sequences. I mean, you've, I know you've worked extensively on that. There are alterations that are made because the actors find that they can't move and speak a particular line at the same time. So there you've got you know, issues about theatrical space as well as the physicality of, of the actor, which are going to affect that. But I think this, this question of, of musicality, what things actually sound like, are also very important for the poetic translator. I mean, you referred earlier to the way in which Ted Hughes often worked on translations of languages where he didn't actually know the language. And if you look at his discussion of the methods that he, he used, not only did he have a very close literal translation prepared for him, but he actually listened to the poem or the text in the original, spoken by a native speaker, so that he had in his mind the sound of those words. And I think that meshes across very closely with you know, the reference that you made to sing, the way in which Heaney, for instance, has commented on the musicality of what he hears in his mind as he's writing. Yes, that's very interesting. I do wish we had we could listen to an ancient Greek tragedy before we start rehearsals. <laughs> this is, you were talking about the things that come out in rehearsal, and it's interesting, yes, the, the, the way in which the words must somehow be meshed with the scenic space, with the stage action, is very important. But it is interesting that actors who are prepared to work really hard on turning Shakespeare into something speakable, often want their Greek tragedy to be uh, very easy to speak, to be what you, earlier you called bland. And I think that is something to be uh, resisted, because it, it seems to me that's making a, a slide which shouldn't necessarily be accepted between speakability on the one hand and the colloquial, the everyday, the conversational, what Pasolini called the theatre of chit-chat, on the other hand. And they're not necessarily the same kind of thing. And it does raise an important issue, an issue, the issue where I'd like to bring in the word domestication. I associate with Lawrence Venuti. I don't know whether he actually coined it in this context. But domestication, translation that domesticates, well, it's a bit like a domestic animal. You, t you, know, you take it out of the wild, you get its wildness, you get its unpredictability out of it, give it plenty of uh, food and milk, and then it wags its tail, sleeps uh, in front of the fire and behaves itself. And it's the same with a domesticated translation. It takes the boldness out of it and makes it cosy, makes it familiar. And so that when you... A domesticated translation makes you feel, ah, oh, now I know where I am. But poetry 
is not, or very often not, comfortable. So not domesticated, and especially, I think, Greek tragedy. So there's a case for to be made for the opposite, the antithesis to domestication in Venuti's terms, which is foreignization, making it strange, because poetry very often does make things strange. So there's a double argument here. The original was, to some degree, strange, as you were saying in our last section. At least it wasn't just easy, it wasn't just familiar. And translating from a foreign language, translating from a foreign culture, you could say there's a case for reminding, for alienating, if you like, reminding the uh, audience and the readers that that is the case. I think here, first that comes into my mind is Tony Harrison's Oresteia, which actually said, this is not our culture and it's not everyday language. As for example, instead of saying son and daughter, he would say he child and she child. Instead of saying marriage and blood relationship, bed bond and blood bond. He coined these words to foreignize, and in the process of foreignizing, actually alerted the audience to uncomfortable issues that they wouldn't otherwise have been aware of. So the question I, that, that really taxes me and I struggle with is, is domestic, are domestication and foreignization an either-or? Do you have to do one or the other, or can you somehow both blend domestication and foreignization. I think that's what I try to do in my own translation. I'm not at all sure it works. <laughs> I want to have my cake and eat it. I want to domesticate and to foreignize. Don't know, do you have a, a view on that, Lorna? Yeah, I think my view would be that you actually have to have both, and it's the blend and the relationship between the domestication and the foreignization that actually makes it interesting. But the, the models, the way in which one can sort of cut that particular cake, are actually quite interesting and there are various reasons why I think translation of Greek and Latin texts are almost a paradigm for those problems more generally because we've got in one sense the relationship between the ancient world and the modern world in which we find ourselves where there are degrees of overlap but there are also degrees of, of, of alienation things are incredibly different and yet partly because of history partly because of the nature of the themes that the poetry and the drama is dealing with there are overlaps with our own sensibility and our own experience and so the fact that things are so strange and yet seem so close so important has a, a kind of built-in tension of its own anyway and then the translator's task by virtue of the fact that they're dealing with at least two different languages and different cultures, have to somehow slip into that in a way that takes account of both the ancient cultural situation and the modern one. And I would have thought that the question of who the translation is being prepared for is very important there. The extent to which the um, translator is able to do almost a virtuoso performance of holding, you know, the foreignization and the domestication, you know, together, you know, and playing on the sensibilities of the readers and the spectators. Now, what is possible in one kind of reading or spectating context is clearly not possible in another. I, I was directly involved in a small example, but an interesting one for what you're saying. And it's one that I still feel a bit guilty about well over 10, uh, 15 years later. I was the advisor, the classical advisor, to 
the Royal Shakespeare Company's The Thebans. It's a translation of Sophocles' plays by Tim Blake Wurtenbaker. It was in the early 1990s, I think. And I persuaded them, I, I guess that Timberlake went along with this, that they should make the Greek names strange by pronouncing them with the Greek pronunciation, uh, by being authentic. So instead of saying Oedipus, they said Oedipus. And instead of saying Antigone, they said Antigone. Instead of saying crayon, you know, like the things that uh, children colour with, they said crayon. Um, well, I think the attitude of the audience to this was quite mixed, but the critics absolutely hated it. Universally slated because it defamiliarised, because they, they were used to crayon, they weren't used to crayon. And I felt terrible because uh, they, it got them, productions on the whole were quite successful, but almost every newspaper critic particularly picked on this point to uh, complain about, and I'm afraid I was the person responsible for it. I don't think I've confessed that in public before. I think in those kinds of situations, everybody who's involved with the production has to make some kind of judgment about what audiences can cope with. If you alienate the audience, they will not engage with the play, they will not allow their perceptions to be transformed, which is supposed to be one of the functions of, of theatre. On the other hand, if you make the spectators too cosy and comfortable, then they won't be challenged. It just becomes so popular. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the things about these texts, the fact that they have survived and been, re been reinterpreted and retranslated over centuries is precisely because they challenge not only the the translators and the rewriters and the actors and directors, but also the spectators. So I think the, the sort of the moving target of how you actually hold those things in tension is really probably one of the things that is, is central to whether a, a production is something which actually has a, a lasting impact on the spectators. It's quite a, it's quite a difficult one, I think, because the other issue that's involved with translating poetry is much less something that can be um, you know, rationalised or reasoned through. It's to do with the affective nature of poetic language and its, sort of, its play with the emotions and, and so on. And then you get into very interesting questions about whether the emotional outlook on the world among the spectators is noticeably similar in the ancient world and in the modern world by virtue of the fact that people are human beings who make war and live and die and suffer and, and, and so on, or whether the emotions are things which are very much culturally conditioned and have to be you know, redefined and re-expressed and, and re-situated. And it seems to me that it's poetic language above all else, which is the kind of, of language which actually does move across transhistorically and enable those, those commonalities of experience and emotion to interact with all the other things which are not common, which are different. Yes, and, which and make strange. very different, very yeah. different uh, cultures in, in a, a real sense translatable. Exactly. Yes, yes. And that almost, it seems to me, is a sort of ongoing experimental activity. 
Yes, I like, every, I like your moving target. Every tradition, every context is going to every every reader, every group mm. of readers who, after all, are bringing to the to the text or to the theatre performance the experiences that they themselves have had in their own lives, but which and also the the cultural experiences that they've gained through other things which they have read, which have helped formed you know their cultural horizons and the frameworks within which they're going to start to respond to this new translation or the new theatrical production.